Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Great to have you with us again this week. I'm here with Pastor Nick Katie. He is the pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And we are back in our series called The Risen Life. And uh, if you missed our sermon on Sunday, uh, whitefieldschurch.com. And you can go down there and you can download it. And any of your favorite uh, streaming platforms, uh, you can find it there. It should be there. And uh, if you please subscribe, if you would like, if you would leave a comment, uh, share, all of these things really help get this content moved up in the algorithm. And so when people are asking questions about God and life and, and we can provide them with Christ-centered, God-centered answers to their questions. And so this Sunday we were looking in our series in the risen life as we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 28 and uh, the Great Commission. And uh, one, we had several questions that kind of rose, arose from that. Some of it you weren't able to actually get to in your sermon, but uh, one of those was, uh, first off, it says, Jesus says in, in that passage, starting in verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me on he- in heaven and on earth, therefore go. And the, the question is, what is this authority that Jesus is talking about? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about this um, authority as it runs through the scripture and as it's given to Jesus there after his resurrection. And so um, you could say that beginning in Genesis, we see authority being given by God to agents, right? So the first agents are Adam and Eve and God creates them and he says, okay, subdue the earth, be plentiful, fill the earth, subdue it and, uh, and et cetera. And so what does that mean to, does it just mean have a lot of kids? I mean, it does mean that, but it means more than that. I mean, to subdue the earth, it's the idea of managing it. They're, they're essentially regents, if you will, if uh, they're, they're put in charge over the earth. And so what happens then is essentially um, because we know that later on, Satan is called the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air, right? And, and, and these sorts of things. So what that tells us is that when Adam and Eve um, capitulated, if you will, to Satan's temptation and uh, trying to convince them to trust him rather than to trust in God, uh, essentially they handed over their regency over the earth to him. And so it's interesting in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness after his baptism, uh, that Satan brings Jesus up to a high place and looks out over this place. And he says, all of this, I will give to you if you'll bow and worship me. And of course, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and says, you know, you shall worship the Lord, your God in him alone. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really argue with him. He doesn't argue with him in you know, because we might say, oh, you don't have the right to, you know, that's like me trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Hey, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge for this amount of money. Well, do I own the Brooklyn Bridge? Can I do that? Well, it's kind of the same thing. Satan's like, hey, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. He just says, no, 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 you should worship the Lord, your God and him alone. Quoting from Deuteronomy. So the idea here is that Satan does have some authority over the world. And, um, And yet, how is it then that Jesus, after his resurrection, says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me? Um, You you can think about it like this. I mentioned the book of Job. Job, In the book of Job, in the first chapter, we see that Satan wanted to buffet Job, is what it says, or try or tempt him or, or test him or afflict him. And what he had to do is he had to go to God and get permission. And that's interesting. And how does that work then? If he's an authority, why does he have to ask God? Well, you could think of it in terms of like 
a regional authority or a mayor, for example. A mayor has some authority, and yet he answers to somebody above him. And it's in that same way that Satan, as one who has been given authority in a realm, he still has authority over him, and that ultimate authority is God. So that's why it's so interesting that Jesus would say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I now am that authority that is higher than Satan. I am the one to whom Satan must answer. And so it's pretty interesting. And there's one more passage I would bring to mind in this regard, and that is um, Revelation, I believe it's chapter 5. Chapter 5, yeah. Yeah, where it says that uh, John is caught up into heaven, and he's watching the, the scene up in heaven, and there's this problem. And the problem is that they brought forth this scroll, and it says that no one was found who could open this scroll. And John says, and I wept aloud. And then they told me, you know, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? The lamb is uh, here and he is able to open the scroll and break its seal. Now, what is that scroll? Well, it would seem that that scroll is, or symbolizes at least, authority over the earth, or, or you could call it the title deed of the earth. And Satan, right, has bound this up. It's his. Who can, who can break the seal? Only the lamb of God who is the one who has authority over heaven and earth. He is the one who's able to take the title deed of the earth and he is able to open that scroll. Yeah, no, that's, that's very good to, to bring an explanation to that. And, and as, you know, as we go further on, okay, he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth and then therefore go into all the nations, uh, you know, preaching the gospel and baptizing people in my name. And so the, the next question that arose was what exactly is that mission. Are we all called to go to all the nations? Is everybody to sell all they have and become missionaries? Or what exactly is the mission that God has us on? Let's put it this way. The mission of God is so big that it requires the whole church. And it does require the whole church to go. You know, one of the things I said on Sunday is that the posture, therefore, of of those who follow Jesus, we are to be people on our toes, not people on our heels. We don't, we're not passive. We're not to be waiting. We're to be going, but it doesn't say where to go, who to go to, or, well, it says to go to all the nations, but it doesn't say how far to go, right? Should I go across the street? Should I go across the world? That part's not told, but I would say this, the whole church together is needed for this purpose. And each part working as a body, right? Not everybody's called to go to Afghanistan or, or to, you know, wherever else. But we are all called to participate in this mission. And we need all hands on deck, basically. We need all hands on deck locally and globally. We need to be doing it through uh, financial giving and financial spending, right? Like everything is needed for this to take place and we need to be engaged in it. And that really is the question we have to ask ourselves. How am I actively engaged in it? Now, I think you can be engaged in it by teaching children in the next gen or children's ministry. You can be engaged in it by, you know, volunteering your time or by working in different areas. But the point is we all need to be engaged in it. And that, that's what it means to be a disciple is that we are disciple making disciples. And so the mission is to make disciples of all nations. And, um, and to do that, we have to go. We don't just wait for people to come to us. Um, it's not a passive thing like, hey, we're here if you guys are interested. No, no, no. We're always pushing, always going, moving forward. And that's to be our posture. Yeah, and I think Acts chapter 1 kind of bears that out where, where Jesus says, go to Judea, which is kind of where they were, to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, you know, that idea of we just keep moving forward, we keep expanding our borders. And But, you know, in today's day and age, you know, 
the nations are surround us. Yeah, <laughs> the nations right. have come here, you know, and so you can walk across the street and be witnessing the gospel to somebody from a completely different nation. And, you know, the, the world has changed in that way. So it's, it's not that necessarily go across an ocean missionary mentality. Well, you, you remember we were in Hungary and um, they're in Hungary. In Debrecen, in Hungary, we met refugees from Nigeria. We helped those refugees go to Bible college in Hungary, and then they were those re, those refugees were sent back home to Nigeria to plant Calvary Chapel Church in uh, Abuja. Abuja, yeah, Abuja yeah. yeah, and I mean, so and we saw other things like that happen. You know, I mean, I we had people from the Maldives, people from um, from Iran who came and became Christians in Hungary, and then went back home. And that's the nature of the world today is that you have these parts of the world that are like a heart, right? They, they bring in and then they send out. And we want to be right there. We want to be involved in, in that work. And the global world, you know, yeah, you're right. Sometimes uh, you just have to go across the street to reach the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember back in 2014, you know, uh, you remember this too, when, when all those um, refugee camps emptied out of Syria. Well, uh, the refugees, of course, were in Turkey, and they just started coming into Europe. And uh, that was, you know, this is a, you know, historically countries that have been very difficult mm. to get in to preach the gospel suddenly they were coming by you know at one point in Hungary 25,000 people a day were crossing the border and our Bible college students our church members were out there ministering and serving them and loving them and feeding them and taking care of them and you know trying to witness the you know speak of their testimony whenever they had a chance you know so God always provides and as you said being on your toes when you're on your toes you're always looking for opportunities and many times God is bringing those opportunities and and we just need to grab hold of them no matter where we are you know yeah so many people at that time I remember that time and here in the United States I know more so in Europe but here in the United States people were all worried about you know how are these uh, this influx of of refugees from Muslim majority countries how are they going to change our culture how are they going to affect us now my opinion is that that is a on your heels reaction that's an on your heels reaction which says oh no that they're coming, what are we going to do? Whereas I think the gospel reaction is to say, here are these people who've been behind this, this oppressive regime and they've been in a community that doesn't allow them to think about the gospel or really hear the gospel. And now they're coming to us and we get to reach the world by having them come to our doorstep. What would I do if a Muslim person uh, from Syria moved into my neighborhood? You know what I'd do? I'd take them something. I'd have uh, my wife probably, because I'm not good at it, but I'd have my wife uh, bake them something, and we go and we greet them, say welcome to the neighborhood, and we'd try and build a relationship and hopefully share the gospel with them. And um, what's interesting is that during that time, I actually met somebody here in Longmont who was a refugee from Kosovo in the late 90s, and she ended up coming to the United States and becoming a Christian. You know, Kosovo, a Muslim-majority country. So it's that, that kind of thing, which is like, man, that is, that is the missional mentality. Is not, we're on our heels. Oh, no, I'm afraid we're going to lose our culture. No, 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 it's where are those opportunities to share the gospel, to move, move it forward. I'm not so worried about protecting, you know, what I have as I am about furthering the gospel, right? So we're on offense. We're not on defense. Yeah. No, it's very important. It's very important that the mission is more of a state of mind and, and then it is necessarily, you know, being worried about where I should be. It's, you know, 
any opportunities, a chance to share the gospel. Our last question is kind of more along a theological bent, and that is, why was it important for Jesus to be fully God and to be fully man? It's a really important question. Um, it's one that was uh, one of the first ecumenical, well, actually the first ecumenical council. Now, ecumenical just means um, worldwide, right? So everybody working together. And sometimes that word is used differently today. But what we have in church history is we had what are called the ecumenical councils. There's at least four big ones. The first of them was called the Council of Nicaea. And sometimes the Council of Nicaea is really misrepresented because, you know, people are like, oh, Constantine did this thing. And no, 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 here's what happened. Constantine became a Christian, or at least he claimed he became a Christian. And he looked around and he saw that there was disparity among some of the different churches as far as their doctrines. And this is true because especially during this time, there was a guy in Alexandria named Arius. And Arius was promoting a doctrine which differed from uh, the, the generally held belief about Jesus. And Arius was picking up followers. So people were joining him. And Constantine looked at this and said, you guys, you Christians need to get on the same page. So he said, I'll help you. I'll give you a place to meet in Nicaea, or Nicaea is actually how it's pronounced. But I'll give you a place to meet in Nicaea, and you guys come and meet there, and you know all the bishops, and you guys need to sort out some of this stuff. So that's what happened in 325 AD, uh, the Council of Nicaea, actually pronounced Nicaea, but it's commonly referred to as Nicaea. And they met there, and they discussed primarily one of their biggest discussions was we need to sort out this Arian controversy. And the Arian controversy was basically this. This guy Arius said, Jesus was uh, fully man, but he was not God. He was not God. And they said, well, um, so therefore, you know, we need to get rid of this whole idea that Jesus is God. Well, listen, if Jesus wasn't God, that creates a lot of problems. For example, when we see in Matthew 28, twice that says that people worship Jesus. Wait a second. Are you telling me that people worshiped a man? Right? And they, they used to say, well, he was a really special man. Okay, but still, it's very clear in the Old Testament. You're not allowed to worship anybody except for the one God. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more to this, but there's also some theological implications. Why did Jesus need to be God? Well, the reason there's a Scots Confession, I believe 1609, Scots Confession said that we believe that Jesus is God. And here's why it's so important that Jesus is God. It's because it means that salvation is an act of God, not, uh, not just an act of a proxy or a patsy. And I, I, use, uh, I didn't use this example on Sunday because I heard it afterwards, but I thought it's a really good example. Okay, here's the example. If Jesus was the Son of God, but not God, it would be kind of like this. Uh, let's imagine we're watching football at uh, my house. You're watch you come over to my house, we're watching football, and then all of a sudden somebody kicks in the door and they throw a hand grenade into the living room. And then we see that hand grenade and we're like, oh no. And I say, hey, Mike, don't worry about it. I got this covered. So I would go over into my son's bedroom, grab my son, throw my son on top of the hand grenade, hand grenade blows up, son dies, and we say, problem solved, and go on watching the second half of the football game. Well, you would say, well, that would, you're not a good father. You just, you know, why didn't you fall on the grenade? And uh, essentially that's, that's um, you know, Richard Dawkins, the most evangelical atheist in the world. This is what he always says, that Christianity's message is not good. God is not a good father. He's a father who kills his son, who was innocent. Mm. That's not justice. Divine child abuse. I Divine child abuse. There you it, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that changes if Jesus is God, which of course the Bible says, and Jesus declared, and his disciples realized, right? Is that Jesus is very God of very God, as the, as the creed states. 
And that's important because it means that the, that salvation is an act of God, not uh, the act of God, um, you know, his cowardice or using a patsy, using a proxy to accomplish this purpose. It means that when Jesus was suffering on the cross, it was God suffering for us on the cross. And it means that um, it isn't that God is bad and Jesus is good and God afflicted Jesus and Jesus, you know, poor innocent Jesus took the suffering for us, you know, because God's so mean. No, 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 no. It means that in Jesus, God took the just punishment that he essentially afflicted upon himself rather than inflicting it upon us. And that changes the way that we view God. And by the way, the name Jesus means God is my savior. So, I mean, it, it's, it's built into the, the whole story. It's the whole point is that it is God who saves us in the person of Jesus. It is not uh, another person saving us from God. It is God saving us from the judgment which we have incurred upon ourselves. And that changes everything. It's really good news. Yeah, no, that's that's very, very good to hear. And and a lot more detail can be found on this on your blog, right? Theology for the People? Theology for the People, yeah. yeah. So we'll link that in the description uh, below uh, uh, Nick's uh, blog on it and on this particular topic of, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. And it's very important. I think something you really need to understand, wrap your mind around because it has a lot of implications as you did point out. And there's also, maybe we'll link this in the description as well. There's a great debate between John Lennox and Richard Dawkins on these topics and various other ones. And interesting enough, both of them are Oxford professors. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, of course, a devout Christian, John Lennox, and one a devout atheist, being Richard Dawkins. And it's very fascinating to hear these two minds go at it, two very well-educated uh, people, and discuss and, and chew on these particular subjects. So maybe we'll link that down. It is a 90-minute debate, but uh, so we'll link that down in the description below. And uh, just again, if you missed our, our, our sermon on Sunday morning, Whitefield church.com and get down there and you can download it or any of your favorite streaming platforms and we do look forward to seeing you again next week god bless